So bless you guys. It's good to be back. Uh, we can have had a, a really good time at the conference. It turned out to be really good. I'm not going to ramble on and on and on about it, but I do want to share a couple things. Um, and tonight is actually uh, what I'm gonna, the message I'm going to introduce tonight, and it is going to be an introduction, is from um, an exposure and something that happened at the conference. Uh, but if I didn't have this mic, I'd go stand at that mic because I have a testimony that was provoked by our worship just a minute ago uh, about God being the all-consuming fire. And I shared it with Alan a little bit earlier. Um, he had a, a similarly wonderful one that he's working through about the presence of God. But uh, it, I, I just was reminded, as you were saying that, Laurel, about um, the reality of who God is and how it impacts our life, not just theologically or biblically or any of that. That's all good. But super practically. So here's, here's the brief story and testimony. Uh, and I, I mean it as a testimony, and I'm thanking God. So um, we came back from the southern coast of Oregon, and we had about 26 hours of driving in three days. And so I don't know if, you know, when you do that, you, you got to take a little recovery time because you kind of got the road thing going on, all that kind of stuff. So uh, we got back Wednesday night pretty late. And uh, so yesterday, I did do some thinking and preparing because I felt like we were stirring something in me. But I was also just kind of trying to relax and goof off a little bit. And I made a couple of mistakes, and, and one of them wasn't a mistake. Vicky was watching a video of a gal who I believe her name is Brandy Vaughn, something like that. Uh, Brandy was an anti-vaccine advocate, and she started a, a big website and all this kind of stuff. And she came by it uh, kind of naturally, or in an unnatural, natural way, in that she was a salesperson for uh, Merck, I think. And she got to know the inside workings of Big Pharma and realized that uh, very negative things, people dying, was just a part of the profit equation. So she became a very vocal, very effective uh, um, advocate for alternatives and, you know, uh, scrutinizing vaccines and stuff like that. So anyway, it was, a, it was about a 50-minute lecture that she did, and it was, it was pretty cool. In the course of that, though, I learned that uh, on December 20th, she was found dead in her home after a number of um, incidences where her house was broken into and where various messages were left. And that wasn't really a mistake. That's just what happened as I was listening, I mean, my, that I made. But the mistake I had made is in my effort to just kind of kick back, I indulged watching two or three uh, news clips and reading a couple of news stories about the uh, shift in the CDC's thing about vaccines and the uh, mandating that they're trying to do and, and the fact that the president's thinking about uh, mandating vaccines for federal workers. And I just thought of people, and I thought of this woman, and I, I thought of corruption. And I, I just spiraled into a place of utter darkness in my heart. Murderous kind of darkness, despairing, murderous darkness. And that was for a short time. But at the time, it was all that was in there. It was just really ugly and dark. And so Vicky was heading out to worship practice. The timing just worked out. And I was thinking, maybe I can watch a movie or something, get out of this. And I thought, no, 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 no. Anyhow, 
What I ended up doing was I ended up uh, going upstairs and I laid down on the bed for a second and I grabbed my phone and I thought, huh. I opened the Chosen app. You know what I'm talking about for the TV show The Chosen? And there were some extras that I hadn't seen before. And the first one I, I watched, so I, I said, I, I'm going to just watch these. The first one I watched was about a little girl named Kaylee, I think her name was, Kaylin, Kaylin. She's a 15-year-old uh, autistic girl, real sweet, and she was super touched by the Matthew character being on the spectrum. She recognized how they played it and all that stuff. And so she wrote a letter to Dallas Jenkins, uh, and she was a cellist, and apparently a pretty good one. So she, because uh, that was one of the things that came as the fruit of her autism, whereas a lot of social things were not. Anyway, her parents found out, you know, and, and they saw the letter and stuff, and they thought, wow, how wonderful, you know, that she's so bold to do that and so on. Never dreamed. Well, he got the letter, and he called her back, called her parents back, and said, would it be possible for you to bring Kaylin to our recording studios in Nashville, uh, I think it was Nashville, in, um, in September or October of this year? because we'd like to show her around and let her experience something. Well, the, the upshot of the whole thing, and it was just as sweet as could be, I mean, the composer and the other cellist that they already had and all this kind of stuff. If you remember the scene early in the first uh, year, it's like the second or third episode, where Nicodemus met Jesus on the roof. All of that cello work behind Nicodemus's that was this little 15-year-old girl. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And so... There was two other stories that I watched, uh, and, and I was very intentional about this. One of them was about a, a couple's marriage was on the rocks, and they saw a couple episodes of The Chosen, and then they went to that event in Dallas and signed up to be a part of the cast for the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and just their story. And there was another atheist young woman who uh, her, her friend kept trying to get her to, to just, you know, would you let me pray for you? And finally... Uh, he did, and she did. And anyhow, it ended up connecting back to The Chosen, and she became one of those cast members as well, gave her heart to the Lord. And just her story of her life being totally turned around. So then what I did after that, sorry, this is taking longer than I thought it was going to, uh, is I went back and I watched my favorite scenes, because the app, you can just zoom through them. So I watched the scene where Jesus delivered Mary. And I watched the, 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 the scene in the next episode where Mary was hosting the first Shabbat since she had been delivered. And Jesus comes. She didn't even know his name at that time. He shows up. She's going to defer to him. He says, no, this is your home. And she starts reading the Shabbat prayer about God, the creator, maker of ever, giver of bread. And he's sitting. The one she's declaring is sitting at the end of the table. I mean, I'm bawling like a baby. I, I was just terrified. And I went through two or three other, the scene with Nicodemus, a couple of other, other scenes. And what I noticed was that that darkness in my heart, it was just gone. It, you know, light had shown itself, and that darkness wasn't there. And it wasn't that it was just gone. It had done something to my whole mind and attitude about it. And I just said, none of that matters. Of course it matters, the corruption, all that. But none of it rises to the level of who you are and what happens when your light explodes in the world. And you are going to make things right. You're not going to let this stand. You're not going to let any of this stuff go on. But what really changed was me, my heart, my mind. I didn't have to, I didn't have to fight my way out of those bitter thoughts. I didn't have to do that. 
I just watched a TV show that depicts Jesus something like the wonderful that he is and and then heard the stories and it was just incredible. So I just I want to share that with you because there's plenty of stuff that's deeply wrong and it's deeply offensive and it's deeply hurtful and it's horrible in lots of ways. But uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah 60 that there's darkness on the land and deep darkness on the people. But the glory of the Lord is going to rise on you. And the thing that we were talking about before service is not just on you like an external thing, but because He lives in us. He heals those things from the inside out. I was as clean as the driven snow when I lay down to go to sleep last night. And it was, it was powerful. It was powerful. So anyway, whatever, whatever God has to do to, to keep your heart and my heart fresh and, and soft and childlike, he's able to do it. So anyway, it's pretty cool. It was very cool, actually. All right, so here's what we're going to talk about. Uh, exploring our fellowship, oneness, and the legacy that that has a chance to produce. How are we connected? The life we share with each other and what we pass on to others. So the part of the conference that, and thank you guys for letting me uh, bone up on, on the, the four nouns with God, because that was the thing I ended up sharing at the, as the first snap talk there, and it was super well received. And I made one change the, uh, the night before the conference in the PowerPoint, uh, aside from trimming a few slides off to get it down in 20 minutes. And it was, I turned those original statements, if you remember, God himself is the one God himself is the fire that cleanses. God himself is the light that judges. I turned those into questions. What if it's God himself that is the light that judges? What if it's God himself that is spirit and can penetrate the deepest part of us? I've never seen a shift in framing from a statement to a question so engaged the people that were there. It was really amazing. So questions are just awesome. And they have an an incredible power to pull out of people the heart. So anyway, one of the things that Vicki and I encountered there is a number of young leaders uh, with amazing stories. And I'm not going to take time to tell them tonight, but I will over the next couple of weeks as we look at this a little more in depth. And uh, prior to the last night of the conference, Vicki and I were asked to be on a panel to uh, share our opinion or anything we felt like the Lord was saying to us about where the church was going. And so I'm not sure why we were qualified to do that, but you know, if you ask for my opinion, you'll probably get one. So anyway, I was praying about it. And uh, one of the things for sure that I wanted to share with everybody was how, uh, how confident I was, how encouraged I was that the church is in good hands as we move forward. Because there are young leaders, and we encountered a number of them, that are just amazing, quite frankly. They're just amazing. And, uh, and they, they treated us older non-skinny gene people with such uh, amazing honor. And it was just a beautiful thing. So I was really super encouraged. And that led to the thought and talk at the conference some about legacy, about where do we go from here and how did we get where we're at. And so I was going to come and, and kind of talk about that. And I started preparing specifically. And the issues of fellowship and oneness popped out. And I love it when this happens in the scripture to me. You're looking for one thing and you see that that one thing is built on 
something else that's even more foundational. And so we're not actually going to get to legacy tonight. I'm going to uh, share a definition of it, but we're going to move into the idea of legacy over the next couple of weeks. But I want to talk about our exploring our fellowship and our oneness and how that leads to legacy. So how are we connected? The life we share with each other and what we pass on to other people. Now, I will tell you, I'm not going to be able to share anything new that you haven't already heard. However, if you're like I was, as I saw these things, I realized that I had dramatically marginalized fellowship and oneness. I had depersonalized it, and I had made it more of a, of a Christian experience or a religious experience. And uh, probably that makes some sense to you because we've encountered a few things like that as we've looked. So let's start with a dictionary definition of fellowship. The companionship of individuals in a congenial atmosphere and on equal terms. So this is just a secular definition, and I think that's what perhaps uh, a number of people would think fellowship is. Um, you know, what church do you fellowship at? And hopefully it's a congenial thing where people are, you know, equal terms and sort of like minds. Uh, friendship and comradeship, there was a strong fellowship developed among them. And a close association of friends or equals sharing similar interests. That's one that I really do think is kind of... Then there's another, a biblical definition of fellowship. And in, in uh, lately, as I've looked at words like innocence and those things, it's been an enormously complicated study. This one is as simple as can be. There's one word in the New Testament that talks about fellowship, and it's koinonia. And so it's the, this is sort of, this is out of a, a Bible site and some other dictionary type things. The essential meaning of the koinonia embraces concepts conveyed in the English terms community, communion, joint participation, sharing, intimacy, and oneness. So particularly keep in mind the relational aspects of community, communion, oneness, joint participation as we move forward. Okay, so that's the one that we're going to kind of build our understanding of fellowship on as an introduction out of the Scripture. All right, so here's the definition of oneness. And you'll see why. You can see in the definition of fellowship that oneness was part of that. But you can also, you'll be able to see in just a bit why oneness inserts itself into the idea of our legacy, what we've inherited and what we pass on in fellowship. So it's the fact or state of being unified or whole, though comprised of two or more parts. The oneness of man and nature is this thing the dictionary said. So let me just say that again. The fact or state of being unified or whole through, though com- comprised of two or more parts. Just a simple definition that, that oneness requires more than one part to be talked about as oneness. Okay, uh, Identity or harmony with someone or something. And the fact or state of being one in number. And they, uh, the, the secular dictionary uses belief in the oneness of God there. Now, to, to further dig in a little, I wanted to get the definition of one. And one is constituting a unified entity of two or more components, similar to the one on top, being in agreement or in union. And then one is also obviously a cardinal number, meaning the number one. Okay. Now, this one is interesting to me because it reiterates the number one on the top, but it's a unified entity of two or more components to be one. Okay. And then here is a, a definition of legacy. And legacy is not a biblical word, so you're not going to find it in, in your Bible. Uh, it's money or property given to another by a will. That's a legacy. That's a legal, technical term that's financial. Speaking of which, great job last week, Richard. 
It was, it was wonderful. You spoke passionately. You spoke, it was great. And I sensed that you sense how easy it is for time to go by. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? I mean, it flies right by. But you did a great job. You did a great job. If you guys were gone, if anybody was gone, do go to Facebook and catch Richard's message on, uh, on finance and, and what he shared. It was beautiful. Uh, okay, so the second one here is something handed down from ancestors or a predecessor or from the past. And they use the illustration of a legacy of religious freedom and speak about it as a heritage. And then an individual, this is an interesting one, an individual who is either an applicant to an educational institution or a matriculating student who also happens to be the child of an alumni or alumnus. They're called legacy students, and they get preferential treatment in most colleges. But the one that I want to concentrate on is the one in the middle, something handed down from an ancestor or predecessor or from the past. And so when we talk about uh, legacy, when we get to legacy, the point of it is that we're going to see that there's parts of us that came from other people and parts of us that came to us. And there are parts of them that are alive in us and the fulfillment of their legacy is coming through us. Uh, I'll allude to the passage, but in Hebrews chapter 11, it says toward the end of the chapter that uh, all these people of faith were given a promise, and they acted in faith of that promise, but they were not to be fulfilled, talking about them as people, not to be fulfilled apart from us. It's one of the big legacy statements. We'll look at it next week when we get to it. Uh, so, But we'll save those legacy details for next week. So back to our definition of fellowship. The companionship of individuals in a congenial atmosphere on equal terms, friendship or comradeship, a close association of friends or equals sharing similar interests, and then the biblical koinonia idea of the essential meaning of koinonia embraces concepts of community, communion, joint participation, sharing, intimacy, and oneness. All right. Here's a scripture that speaks about fellowship. Acts 2.42, New American Standard. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, comma, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So what I want you to notice about this scripture is that there is a distinction between what the new believers did that were coming into the church, what they did in relationship to what the apostles taught, and to fellowship, that, that those are two different things. Now, I don't know enough about the Greek grammar yet in this sentence to, to know if that comma, the way it's translated, means that fellowship had to do with the breaking of bread and prayer, or if it's another category, but it's not a fully distinct contrasted category by the conjunction. So there's, there was the teaching of the apostles that was a part of church life, and there was fellowship that was a part of church life. And then those included the breaking of bread and, uh, and um, prayer. I mean, you see what I'm saying? So fellowship is a, in a sense, it's its own entity in the early church ranked up there. Now, you could make a case that the first thing they mentioned was the apostles' teaching, and that was perhaps more important than fellowship, but I don't want us to do that, really. I think, I think I've done that almost my whole life. Uh, it's ranked everything that way, and I, I think this is... I just want us to realize that fellowship is right up there with teaching, communion, and prayer. And then here's one. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with... His Son, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, so this is the kicker. This is the one that's starting to change what I want us to think about. Fellowship is not just, the way the definition said, uh, a congenial group getting along with common interest. Fellowship is literally with Jesus. It is in Him. And we sell fellowship short when all we talk about is the, the social relationship in church among believers. And I'm not trying to diminish that at all. I don't feel like we have to diminish it to understand fellowship. As a matter of fact, I think that relationship between you and me and you and you is going to be exalted once we get a grip on what real fellowship is. That Fellowship literally is an engagement between you and Jesus himself. A relational engagement. This one says it a little more extensively. I, I went over and appealed to David Bentley Hart's translation because of a couple things he said, but I, I don't want to lose the fact that down there in the bottom where you see koinonia in brackets next to the word communion, that is the same word for fellowship. That's it. It's just that Hart translates it communion. Uh, but what was from the origin? Now this is the, this is the arena of theological thought by John in the, in the beginning of this epistle, 1 John. This is the arena that fellowship rises to. Not just the social connections in church. It rises to the connections that what was from the beginning, what was from the origin, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. I type this in, that's why there's a misspelling. What we have gazed upon and our hands have touched concerning the logos of life. And the life was manifest and we have seen and bear witness to and announced to you the life of the age. So it goes from the beginning to eternal life. If I were to read this one, I probably should do that. Read it to you in New American Standard. Because it's more familiar sounding to most of us. Um, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy Maybe made complete. So let me go back here to what, the way David Billy Hart said it. And the life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness to and announced to you the life of the age, which was present with the Father and which was made manifest to us. What we have seen and heard we also announce to you so that you may also have communion with us, and our communion is indeed with the Father and with his Son Jesus, the Anointed. And we write these things to you so that our, or some of the text's manuscripts, say your, and uh, that's why he, it's written that way, but so that our joy might be made full. So what I, the point I want us to wrestle with here is that we have permission, if we want to take the Scripture seriously, to elevate our concept of fellowship to something that is fully cosmic and fully eternal. Fellowship is not what we do with one another while we're all trying to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Fellowship 
is the essence of the relationship that Jesus came to bring with his Father. And Paul in Corinthians lets us know that the fellowship is precisely with Jesus' Son. And John here says it's with Jesus and his Father. And this begins to make a bunch of simple scriptures that we all know make more sense. But I've never thought of them in terms of fellowship. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, if you, uh, if you had believed in him, you would have received me. There is a fellowship component, this communion component. And think about the impact of that in communion. We relegate communion far too often, I think, in our minds to an act celebrating the death of Jesus and celebrating our own cleansing. But the communion is an ever-present thing going on in our life that is celebrated by that bread and wine act. So I guess what I'm saying is as we consider what we have been handed as a heritage and a legacy and what we can now pass on to other people as a heritage and legacy and what we can share with one another in here is called a fellowship characterized by oneness. But that is more than those words would probably speak to us. And, and, and the kind of reverence that it deserves, the kind of awe that could be stood in here, our fellowship as believers, as children of God, our fellowship, yes, links us directly to Jesus, connects us directly, relationally, powerfully with the Father, but it also connects us with the beginning of time and it connects us with the eternity that time is going to be expressed in. So where do you fellowship? Deserves a different answer somehow, and I don't know what it is yet. I don't know what it is yet, but knowing me, it'll lead to a, a long, confusing monologue for the first person that asks. <laughs> so I, I, I'm looking, looking forward to it a little bit. All right, so let me get just a couple other points here. So the fellowship that was from the origin, the communion that was from the origin, is characterized here like it's characterized in the first part of the Gospel of John, that what uh, touching the Logos of life, and life was manifest, and we've seen it, and bear witness to it. Jesus was with the Father, and it was the relationship that they had with each other in the Spirit that was the womb of creation. It was the womb of the conception of God's children. It is where you were thought of. And you were created to have fellowship, to have communion in the dynamic of that relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's bigger than what I've thought of fellowship as being. That was the guiding love principle in the heart of the Father to want sons, like it says in Ephesians chapter 1. The end of this is the guiding destiny principle that caused the Father to want us to be conformed to the image of His Son, like it says in Ephesians. So this fellowship thing is really, really huge. And this just, like I say, tonight can only be an introduction, but we're going to get into it a little bit more. All right, so... The definition of oneness, the fact or state of being unified or whole, though comprised of two or more parts, and then we go down to the definition of one, constituting a unified entity of two or more components. I just wanted to remind you that. So here are some uh, scripture to revealing our oneness. 
Do not ask on behalf, I do not ask on behalf of these loans. In John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father. But for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. The Greek word there is, is, uh, heis. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. All right, so let your mind expand and run with this thing that is being prayed by Jesus about us. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That is everyone in this room. He is praying for you and me because we believed because of what we've read and heard of what these guys that he was praying for earlier in John 17, the apostles, disciples. So literally this prayer is for you. Does that make sense? All right. That they may all be one. Um, Alan was talking about the alls and buts. And if you don't, if you don't focus in on them and let the but create the contrast and let the all mean all, you're going to miss some important things. Here's what's going on. That they may all be one. Be one. Be a unified entity in spite of being comprised of individuals or more than one. And then the all here, if we give it any weight at all, we can't be satisfied with the fragmentation of believers. We can't be satisfied with the fragmentation of, of denominations and all of that kind of stuff. We can't think that we're fulfilling this scripture by the 25 or 30 of us, 40 of us that are here tonight, really getting it together socially in a wonderful way. There is a oneness here, a union here, that is the expectation of creation. It makes me realize why Paul reveals that creation groans waiting for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. And in a minute, you're going to see how significant that is. That they may all be one, but here is the measure of oneness. Not that Dave and I agree on, like doctors, uh, seven of eight doctors agree that, you know, that we agree on four out of our six cardinally held beliefs. That's good. And there is an element of agreement in union and an element of agreement in oneness. But look at the, ma- the, 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 the magnitude of what the comparison is here. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. If you can't imagine a division of purpose or a division of intent between the Father and the Son, it doesn't sound like it's appropriate between brother and sister. I don't know how to walk that out. If, if you can't imagine that a division in purpose and a division in intent... Now, I'm not talking about individual application because the body is many parts and the ear doesn't say to the hand. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about... what your heart and your soul longs for, what your heart and soul reaches for and will be satisfied by in God. If you can't imagine a division between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, it probably isn't right to settle for that kind of a division among brothers and sisters. Now, I did have, I told you I wasn't going to tell you a lot of travel stories. We went and spent some time with my, uh, with Vicky's sister and brother-in-law, um, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. 
And it was wonderful. And we ended up going to church on Sunday morning. And it had been the first time I'd been in a, a straight-up Southern Baptist church in a really long time. And it was a neat service uh, because there was a young intern who was preaching his message uh, that he needed to get into Bible college. And he was very articulate, and it was good. Uh, but I, I sat there, here's a but, but I sat there and I just realized how dramatically who we think God is and what we think God's focus is affects everything. The young guy preached out of uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, which is one of my favorite passages. And obviously, I'm so biased. When I read that passage, we're new creatures. God uh, was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself. Um, not counting anybody's trespasses against us. His entire message out of that section was about sin. And, and the picture and everything, it was, it was, it was, it wasn't bad. And I, I want you guys to be proud of me because I sat there and I, I saw why his thoughts were what they were. And it has to do with what he thought the centerpiece of this passage was and who God was and how God was offended by this and how our job, our primary job, is to manage that stuff out of our life. And so this, though, is the destination. So I could have fellowship with him. you know. Now, I wouldn't be there week after week, probably, because that would be difficult for me. But I, I, I did not allow myself to have that bitter type of thought. And that kind of reflects back on the testimony I shared about what happened last night. Is There was enough of the image of God in Christ that I saw last night watching those clips from The Chosen and seeing the testimonies of those people that it literally pushed the darkness out. It didn't make it any better that this woman was killed. And it didn't make it any better that the abuses that are going on in our medical freedoms and stuff. But for the life, for my fellowship with him, it was all pushed out. It was all pushed out. And uh, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And then here is the accompanying promise that I think we've missed a little bit. That the world may believe that you sent me. And we'll look at this more as we go forward. But if we think of that as 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 a so and a promise, then maybe there's something to us fighting for the more glorious image of fellowship and oneness. Maybe even, I don't know how to do it yet. I don't know. And I'm hoping we can explore it as we move through the next few weeks. But I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I don't think that Jesus has rescinded this prayer just because we're all fragmented and the world doesn't yet know him. So whatever role we can play in this all and so, I want us to try to learn to play. All right, so, um, oops, did I go back? No. I went forward, I probably hit the button. Now I'll go back. Oh, now I'm lost. There we go. Okay, so that's that one. Here's another one. This is connecting. Uh, sorry, I broke an important connection about glory in that, so we'll try to recapture. The glory which you have given me I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. 
I, uh, I pray with pastors once a month in town, have for years, and very, very frequently, one of the main subjects of our prayer meeting and themes is unity. Being one. Never once, and I'm as guilty as everybody else that I've been praying with, never once did the thought enter our mind or come out of our mouth that the way we're going to be one is because the glory that the Father gave Jesus, Jesus is giving us. We have a hundred other ways to try and be unified, to try and be one. And I stand before you and admit my ignorance. I don't even know what that means. I barely know what glory is. But what a horrific thing to neglect in a 35-year pastoral career. So I'm not going to, it's not going to be that way next week. I'm not going to be as ignorant of this truth as I am right now. And I hope not even more as, as the weeks go on. Look at what that says. The glory which, this isn't a prayer of something that God's going to do. This is Jesus telling his father what he has done. The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one, still measured by the same oneness. Glory and oneness are linked. Not the kind of humility that leads to the lowest common denominator of our beliefs. And I, I've done that, and I respect that people are trying to be unified that way. What if this is true? What if the, not the simplicity or the simpleness of just let's get together on what we can agree on, what if we somehow figure out how to see the glory of God in our brother and sister? I got a glimpse of that glory in that young man that was preaching in the Baptist church. And I, didn't, I wouldn't have preached the message in the way he did at all. But I had no bone to pick with him. He was a neat kid. God's call is on his life. He loves the Lord. If I can find the glory in somebody, can I find the oneness as well? And if I can, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Again, so that the world may know that you sent me. I don't understand the ramifications of this for what we call evangelism. I don't know how it plays into missions. I don't know yet. But I know this. I have ignored ignorantly, and neglected what Jesus said is the primary thing about our oneness and unity, which is that you and I share a glory that has already been given to us that the Father gave to the Son. So can you see, even if we don't understand it, and I, and I, I see and I don't understand it, but can you see how important it is to, to at least open our heart to say, Father, I don't, I don't fully understand how to even think about this, but if you'll show me fellowship as more significant than I've known it to be, and if you'll show me our union based on glory in a way that I've never conceived of it, I'll, I'll learn it. I'll yield to it. I'll say yes to it. Somehow there's a key here that is, I think, extraordinary. Uh, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, 
I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. And here's the reason why. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see how this connects us right back to the beginning, pre-creation, the womb of the relationship that exists in the dynamic between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, into which you and I were conceived in the heart of the Father as children, into which we were conceived as brothers and friends. Jesus didn't come to the revelation that I no longer call you, Isaac, a servant. I call you a friend. He didn't come to that revelation just a few hours before his crucifixion in John chapter 15. That was in, that's how he saw us before the foundation of time. Oh my gosh. I don't even know what that means again, but it's a big deal. I'm guaranteeing you that. It's a big deal as we unite our hearts with this vision that he has of us as children, as he has of us as friends, as he have, has of us as brothers and sisters, as he has of us as kings and priests. I think things are going to be unlocked. I think there's going to be room in our hearts for the miraculous things that right now we hold out at arm's length and hope to get to through whatever you know, the right kind of formula of repentance or something. Father, I desire they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so they may see my glory. If you want to push that off to the return of Jesus in the end of days, I, you can, and many do, but I would really encourage you to say that's not what he was talking about. Jesus appeared to these guys a number of times just after he prayed this thing, after he rose from the dead. And he sent the Spirit and manifest, and all this stuff about the Spirit living in us came after this prayer was prayed and this declaration was made. So I think Jesus is here to be known and seen, and I think we can be with him in a way that is a mystery, I get it, but it's real, and I think we can see his glory. That's the part. Our fellowship and our oneness is based on being given the very same glory. And I know this will sound dangerous because doesn't that lead to hubris? Doesn't that lead to weird blurring of the lines between us and Jesus? Maybe. But it's worth looking at anyway because of what it says in the Word. Our fellowship is a manifestation of the oneness that is the result of being given the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the foundation of the world. That is why you're a Christian, because you have that glory. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen on you. Behold, there is darkness in the land, and deep darkness on the people, but the glory of the Lord has risen on you. And then Isaiah 60 moves into 61, and it talks about repair of the breach, talks about the exchange, talks about the gospel. Powerful. There's something here for us to come into in agreement with the purposes of God as the Father has given the glory to the Son that He had with Him from the foundation of the world, and we have been drawn into that. There's something to learn. I don't exactly know, but we're going to try. Um, Back to that passage. What we have seen and heard, we also announce to you that you may have fellowship or communion with us. And our communion is indeed with the Father and with His Son, the Lord Jesus. Not an external thing, an internal thing. Okay, so we'll we'll look at legacy, but you can imagine 
in just a moment, you can imagine what a discussion of, of legacy. What have we inherited from the cloud of witnesses? What are we passing on to our children? What can we pass on? Not just a good understanding of social things. It, we're passing on glory that can manifest in them and reveal to them the Father and the Son in a way that that's something that Vicky and I saw in some of these young leaders. They had insights. They were amazing. They had insights because God was their Father too. And Jesus had His glory abiding on them too. And they pulled stuff out of me that was crazy good. It was wild. So, I've used up most of the time, but the mic is open. Any thoughts? It's just an introduction. Everybody was, uh, I loved the idea of us having time for questions in our church when we got a chance to share it with them. Yes, sir. One of my thoughts has to do with um, developing, if I'm developing a concept of oneness with God, it's going to communi- develop my communication with God. Mm-hmm. So just the very act of asking God, what do you, th- what do you think of what just happened? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Assuming and knowing that he's with me <clears throat> and experiencing what I'm experiencing at the same mm-hmm. time is going to improve, I think, my communication. That's cool. Let me go back to this little definition somewhere. Uh, the definition of oneness. All right, so these words... Community, communion, joint participation, sharing, intimacy, and oneness. That's what you're saying. Those, those have real meaning in our fellowship, real manifestations in our oneness and in our union. I think this is, this is kind of what I'm excited about about this. Is, uh, no, it's good. Uh, what I'm excited about is the potential that this has to unlock the thing that our hearts are designed and long for that our spirits have searched out and been led to. Uh, you know, like, so in the childness thing, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit uh, into your hearts to cry, Abba, Father. I've tried and tried to make that more relevant in my own thinking. I think this might hold the key. If I begin to taste and experience the glory, the glory, isn't that what we're... We're longing for when when a bad report comes. Isn't that what we're longing for when we're longing for repentance in our nation or longing for a nation to open up to the gospel? I think so. I think so. Yeah, Richard. You mentioned, you mentioned the young. You mentioned the young people. Um, when I was in California, I met with some young people too. Uh, they opened a Moose Dog Brewing. Uh, on the light side, their light beer is Illumination Blonde Pale Ale, Ephesians 5.13. <laughs> uh, on, the, on the hoppy side, Eagle One EPA, Isaiah 40.31. You've got a whole list. Every beer has a scripture has next a scripture to it. associated with it. And, <gasps> and they've had... Scandalous. They've, they've, they've had remarkable uh, patronage. People coming in not knowing... And they go, what, what's this stuff on the side here? And but they've been able to witness. They've been able to talk about Jesus. They've been. It's just been awesome. It was really awesome. Wow. Yeah. How old are these guys? Uh, in their uh, 
early 20s, late uh, 20s. Okay. Uh, they, okay. They decided it was two um, sisters, their, their husbands said, hey, let's, let's make some beer. And they started making beer. Wow. And then they started making more beer. And then they developed it into a little brewery that they have. Mm-hmm. It's just... So, you know, so a generation that by most church analysts is characterized as being indifferent to the Scripture is the first probably to put it on the menu at a brew house. Thoughtfully from the sound of it and effectively. All right, Father, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for pointing this stuff out. And Lord, I'm always amazed when something seems so new and it's been in the pages of Scripture ever since the day I first read it and ever since the day we first read it. And yet there is more here, Lord, that if we will slow down and take it seriously, and if we will humble ourselves and position our hearts to receive the revelation of it by the Spirit, there is something here that can dramatically change our concept and our experience of fellowship and of oneness and our experience of your glory. Lord, we want to leave the upcoming generation, and we want to recognize the heritage that we have in light of this sort of definition of fellowship and oneness. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.